You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Brian Quist. Hi, I'm Travis Shakespeare, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. I've mentioned a few times on this podcast that I stumbled upon a documentary before entering medical school that really touched me. It was called The Making of a Doctor, and it was playing on PBS at the time. I remember watching the show and actually weeping at points. The trials and tribulations of the doctors in training seemed so real to me And I felt like going forward, I knew what I'd be getting myself into when I started medical school. You know what I didn't think about, though, while watching the film? The enormous impact that making this documentary must have played on the dozens of people involved in telling this story. The writers, producers, camera people, makeup artists, etc. How are we changed by the act of creation? Travis Shakespeare has a decades-long history of bringing incredible, unsung, everyday heroes to life in television and film. He's a former SVP of Unscripted Programming at BBC Studio and the director and executive producer of Playing With Fire, the documentary. And Brian Quist is a film director specializing in multi-platform storytelling, commercials, and branded video content. He has a long list of clients, including Masterclass, Vogue, MTV, and Vanity Fair. He also produced and directed the popular Firestarter video series for MarketWatch. Travis and Brian, welcome to Earn and Invest. Travis, I want to start with you. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do you get involved in a project because a subject interests you, or do you start a project and then get interested in the subject matter? Hey, Doc. Thanks for having me back. I think that both happen. I mean, in my TV career, it's been the case that people have brought content to me and then I've also created content. With Playing With Fire, that was something that was gestating in my own life and that I decided to try to work toward as a documentary. Are there subjects, Travis, that have been brought to you, let's say, for instance, in your TV career that you developed a profound interest in afterwards? Probably I would have to say Alaska. That state kind of put its claws into me about 14 years ago. And I wasn't necessarily looking to go there. Somebody had hired me to supervise a TV show called Ice Road Truckers, which was about, you know, the trucking industry over very dangerous roads. And I ended up going to Alaska for the winter in Fairbanks. I landed and it was negative 33 degrees and I was not properly dressed and I immediately went into prehypothermia. 
spent a long, cold, weird winter there. I didn't think I would go back. And then they hired me again for the next season. So I went back again. And then from that point forward, I just kept going back. And I was just there actually a week ago doing my last run for Life Below Zero. I really realized that I've totally fallen in love with that state and the people there, the, 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 the individuals that seek out a life of freedom or who are running from, from something or who are running to something are endlessly fascinating. And that, along with just the sheer beauty of the landscape, has completely changed my life. Brian, I'm interested in this idea of experiencing the world behind the lens of a camera. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up filming things. How did the camera help you relate to the world? I Well, thanks again for having me as well. I think it's one of those weird things when I remember when my dad brought a, a camera home from work when I was maybe eight or nine. And you just sort of take to it naturally. It's, it's I, you know, kind of, I don't know, weird way I relate it to young people in technology today who, who take to it so much more naturally than, than even some of us who, who now are sort of seeming ancient. But it just felt natural to investigate the world through it. And I, and, and I wasn't an awkward kid in any, in any way, but it felt like, I mean, we would go on these family vacations and all I would do was film. It was, a, it was I think I was just... I was interested in seeing what the world looked like through this other particular medium. And, 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 I, and it made me maybe more excited about, about the world. I remember going to Mexico with my mom when I was young and traveling around these sort of ruins and archaeological digs. And I, I mean, I probably would have been interested in it if I didn't have the camera, but something about having the camera made it more interesting. The ability to sort of record and capture and maybe eventually as I ended up doing, you know, sh- share what I saw in some way. So it just, you know, it came very intuitively. It was like when the camera showed up, it was, I don't want to say it was a part of me that's a little too played out, but like it, it, it just happened very naturally. Travis, did you have similar experiences in childhood? You know, I think for me, I was trying to understand who I was. And there's something that is, you know, inherently an observer in me. I think in many ways, I felt like an outcast as a kid growing up. And so I sat back watching the broader world, trying to understand where I fit in. And that coupled with a really strong spirit of exploration is probably what propelled me to go out as a broad observer into the world. Travis, do you remember the first moment picking up a camera or deciding, hey, maybe I should go into film or be a producer of some sort? It wasn't a camera um, per se. I mean, my dad did give me a Super 8 camera that I would uh, make movies with, you know, as a kid. I mean, they weren't really movies, but, you know, film clips, let's say. But what really sparked me, well, there were two things. One was, okay, I didn't know what documentaries were as a kid. I grew up in like semi-rural Colorado and, and in the 70s and there weren't really documentaries per se, like in, in popular culture to be consumed. One person asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I said, I'm either going to be an astronaut or a documentary filmmaker. And I didn't even know what that <laughs> meant. I don't know where that got in my brain, but it seems to have come true somehow. But I think the thing that really made me understand that I would 
probably become a craftsperson was that I would go to the movies with my dad. My dad loved action films. And just as a kid, I would start ripping apart the movie. And I wasn't able, like, I know that I am really in the hands of a careful filmmaker when my critical mind shuts off and I'm not ripping the movie apart. The second that I start, my mind starts seeing a flaw in the, in the craftsmanship, an entire process just unloads in my head. That's not pleasant for anybody to be around, let, let alone my dad. (laughs) And we would walk, walk out of the theater and he'd be like, that was a pretty cool movie, right? And I'd be like, well, you know, there were a lot of issues because, you know, they didn't do this and the sound design and I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And I would just rip it apart. And he would say to me, I don't know how you're ever going to be able to enjoy watching movies if you come, come to it with this kind of attitude. But the rest is history. Brian, we're going to talk in a moment about how you both got involved in financial media specifically But I feel like there's an undergirding message here about storytelling. Talk about the importance of storytelling in media culture today. I mean, I think it's as important. I mean, I think it's as important as as ever Uh, when media now is consumed, especially video media, you know, so prolifically. I think that the craft of storytelling is sort of like the piece. I don't want to say the piece that's missing. Cause I don't, I don't actually think that these small short videos or TikTok and these kinds of things are, are lacking storytelling necessarily. But I do think that what's going to make one person or one piece of content stand out versus the other is going to be the ability of the creator to tell a story, even if it's in 15 seconds on TikTok. And, and I continue to believe that this, I mean, this is just an ancient form of communication. And I, you know, this is how we've been doing it for forever. And I think it will continue to be the most relevant way that we find a way to connect as humans. So I can say for myself in my trajectory, I had been making films, you know, in my teenage years and then, you know, attempting to make them professionally in my early 20s. And I had a very clear break in my early 20s when I realized. I would probably make movies the rest of my life, but I didn't know if I would be very good at it. And I changed my attitude around film school, which was originally, I was one of these, like, you don't need film school. You just go make movies, which is a philosophy that a lot of people espouse. And I actually think is the, is the mostly correct way. But for me, I knew that I was, there was a deficit in my knowledge of storytelling. And I took the dive and I ended up going to Columbia university to study directing and writing and, you know, I was 25, I had already made some films, but there, I, I, I realized even in the two or three or four years that I was there, how, how little I really did know about the craft of storytelling. And that was profound for me. And even though it, it put me into a ton of debt, which is interesting and related to the topic we're going to talk about, I don't regret it at all. It was, it was really necessary for my personal trajectory to sort of study and understand story. Travis, speaking about storytelling, before you could become the executive producer and director of Playing With Fire, you obviously had your own financial journey and discovered the financial independence retire early movement. Tell us about how you got involved in that movement. How did you discover Fire? Well, I can't wait to hear how much student loan debt Brian was carrying or is carrying (laughs) uh, because that's part of my story too. I mean, my story goes back to, you know, I wanted to be an artist and I 
was I didn't go to school for filmmaking. I, I studied languages and literature and I wanted to be an actor. That's how I got into entertainment. And I was really big into the theater, actually, which is probably the worst possible choice that you could make. But, you know, I, I racked up about $40,000 in student loan debt going to college. And I consolidated my loans at 9% interest, which at the time they told me was the lowest interest rate I would ever see in my lifetime. But then my dad passed away kind of early from ALS when I turned 40 years old and he was a school teacher and he had a teacher's pension, which mostly went to my mom. And then he also had $150,000 in the Vanguard Star Fund that my sister and I split. And that $75,000 allowed me to pay off my $40,000 that I was still carrying because I had already paid $40,000 in interest up to the time I was 40 with my 9% rate. And I paid off that debt along with some credit card debt. And for the first time in my life, I had about $22,000 in the black. And I panicked because I was completely financially illiterate and I had no idea what to do with the money other than I need to be investing. And I think for the first time I ran a retirement calculator and I almost puked because (laughs) I was like, I am screwed, like cat food in my future, no question. And so I started, you know, just trying to teach myself and I started, you know, I had a job actually, even though I was that much in debt, I had started working in reality TV and I managed to save up $5,000. And I went to a physical branch of Charles Schwab and I asked to see an investment advisor and they brought me back and I said, I've got $5,000 to invest. And he literally turned me away and he said, come back when you've got 50. And I was like, wow, I'm so poor that the investment people won't even take my measly $5,000. And I realized that I was in real trouble. Long story short, I started studying and shortly thereafter, I would say about two or three years after that, Mr. Money Mustache and JL Collins started publishing and I came across their blogs and that set me on a new path. Brian, I mean, you mentioned your student loan debt. Talk to us about your financial trajectory and did it eventually affect the type of projects you got interested in professionally? Without a doubt, it affected it. I went to school. I went to grad school to study directing and filmmaking. And 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 the goal to come out of there is to make feature films, uh, narrative feature films. The, the, the Columbia program doesn't do documentaries, even though that's what's in my blood. That's what I do today. You know, the goal, the holy grail for me was to make feature films. And to be totally frank, to this day, I still haven't made my first feature. That That holds out still as a holy grail. So I graduated in 2010. So we are 11 years later and I still haven't done it. And I think a big part of that is not just the debt, but the fear uh, around money and around security. And I have a number of other fellow students who went on to make movies and do well. I have a, you know, I have, and I don't, and I don't know what distinguishes them. Maybe some of them had family money. Maybe some of them were willing to take that creative risk that I wasn't, but to, to say that it influence my career, absolutely. The first thing I did after grad school, I knew I, the debt actually really motivated me I immediately went to go start making money. And so in New York, I got work in the fashion industry, ironically. Condé Nast was a magazine business was sort of suffering, but they were putting a lot of energy into video content. And I got hired to shoot, edit, direct fashion videos in, in New York. And it was a good day rate. And it was, and it was, 
it felt good. It was, I was making money. I graduated from Columbia with $180,000 of student loan debt. So, so yeah, I was, I was, I was making decent money and I felt proud of that accomplishment and and fashion wasn't what I, what I, what I planned to do, but it was fun. It was, you know, there was something sort of sexy about it, so to speak, but I made a pretty cool shift at one point where a few years after working in this capacity as a day player, it was a sort of like a day rate, you know, kind of permalance type thing. Um, I saw an opportunity to shift and start my own company and, and was able to actually bring some of these magazines on board to my company. There was sort of a loophole in the way that the, the contract was set up and these magazines were actually able to hire you know, outside companies outside of the Condonast network. And so that shift really catapulted me. And that was the first time I made substantial money. And with that money, I actually started investing um, in real estate. I did not pay down my student loans. It was a, it was a very conscious choice that I made, not not knowing then what what now I know now, which was that it was a really smart choice. But it was a conscious choice that I thought maybe I could handle the student loan payments and that investing and buying houses. I went, I ended up buying houses in my native hometown of Seattle, where I am right now. Actually, this house that I'm sitting in is the first house I bought in 2012, and then I bought another one in 2014 just with like the other scraping of savings I could pull together and just somehow bought a little small rental property here as well. And those two decisions probably are the best financial decisions I have made you know, on my financial path. I will say I still have um, $30,000 of student loan debt. Brian, how did you get involved with the Firestarter project at MarketWatch? Is that something you brought to them or they brought to you? Nope. They brought it to me. A colleague of mine, Melissa Haggerty, who is sort of runs up a part of their video their video department asked me if I wanted to to do some profiles on this this community it was 2019 I was in the middle of renovating my third rental property purchase which I purchased in LA it was a duplex I was way in over my head I was renovating by myself so I was already it's so interesting with fire because I was already doing a lot of these things I had no idea there was a community of people that talked about it, that had ideas around it, that had formulas on how to do it better, that went out and went camping together. I mean, I had no clue. And I got sent out on assignment to do two profiles. The first one was for Jillian Johnsred, and the other one was for Bianca Di Valerio. And that was the my literally introduction was showing up in Montana with a camera at Jillian's house at six in the morning with four kids running around making pancakes and talking about how money plays into building a life you love. And so and so I kind of skipped over a lot of the tropes of fire. The tropes, the tropes, the, the sort of cliche tropes are tech bros making a lot of money, eating ramen noodles. I, I just, I mean, sure, I had done a little research, but you know, I got thrown into working class family, military family who decided to use these tools to build a life they love. And it had nothing to do with making a ton of money or being privileged. It had to do with you, you know, being really smart about decisions and, and being willing to live in play. You know, they, they bought a $50,000 house in Whitefish, Montana, like, and, and it was full of mold. I mean, these are choices, right? So, so it's important to point out that there are sacrifices along the way, but that was my, that was my introduction. And I mean, I was I was hooked very very quickly because I mean, in fact, Jordan, it's kind of interesting. I think we went, when we were doing our project with Grant, I, I I was asking him who said this, and I think it was you who said something to the effect of that when when you talk about fire, some individuals really blow it off, really kind of roll their eyes about it, 
and sort of say that's that's ridiculous or that's unattainable. And I think I, I can't remember if it was you or Grant, but somebody said the people that take to this movement are usually the ones who are who are already seeking seeking answers or seeking some some help or some knowledge or are passionate about these ideas. And again, these ideas aren't about money. These ideas are about thriving. And so I was 100% one of those, one of those people. And then I continued to just, you know, thankfully I got to, I got to make a number of more profiles. I think I did nine total profiles for market watch of different individuals. We are talking to Brian Quist, who is a film director specializing in multi-platform storytelling, commercials, and branded video content, and Travis Shakespeare, who is the former SVP of Unscripted Programming at BBC Studios. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to remind you that if you're enjoying the Earn and Invest podcast, there are a few other ways in which you can interact with our community. The first is our Facebook group. This is the place where we discuss all our episodes of personal finance, today's headlines. Just go to EarnAndInvest.com slash Facebook. Again, that's EarnAndInvest.com slash Facebook. While you're there, you can also go to earnandinvest.com. That is my website where you can find all of our old episodes, some blog posts, as well as video content. We'd love to see you there. You can join our newsletter. Also, my new website, jordangrummet.com, that's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com, is now live, and there you can go to find out everything about the book launch, which is scheduled for August 2022. My book, Taking Stock, is about the confluence of my knowledge as a personal finance podcaster as well as end of life as a hospice doctor. I talk about the stories, what I've learned from taking care of people as they've near death and what that has taught them about money and happiness. Check us out at any of these places, and I'd love to see you become part of our community. Now back to the show. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Travis Shakespeare, who is the director and executive producer of Playing With Fire, the documentary, and Brian Quist, who produced and directed the popular Firestarter video series for Market Watch. Travis, let's talk about this juxtaposition. It sounds like Brian came to the Firestarter series without knowing much about financial independence. 
Your story, on the other hand, you had done the deep dive before the start of the movie. I'm interested in how the filming of the movie changed any of your opinions or philosophy about financial independence. I mean, the first thing that I would say is that although I work in Hollywood, I'm not typically much of a fanboy, but I really was a fanboy with the financial independence community. And I went to Chautauqua with JL Collins, Mr. Money Mustache, Jeremy from Go Curry Cracker, and Brandon from The Mad Scientist. I think it was the second or the third one. And I was totally starstruck by these guys. Their level of knowledge just like blew my mind. And I felt extremely grateful for, you know, what they were willing to share for free, really, with the world. Like everybody, they're just human beings. It was interesting for me just as on a personal journey to go from like fanboy to, oh, yeah, these are just human beings, just like everybody else I've ever met in the world. In terms of the philosophy of financial independence, I think what I've come to is that there is way too much emphasis on getting to your number in some ways does a disservice to what the point of the movement is all about. I was reflecting recently on the most impactful moments on my journey. And there were three. The first one was when I had one month's expenses saved and I was like, wow, like if I get fired or I can't find a job or whatever, I'm fine. And then the second, which was the most powerful was when I had one year's full expenses saved up because that really changed everything for me. That was when I started taking greater chances at work, when I felt freer to speak my mind. And, and, and really, I think looking back, if you have a year's worth of expenses saved, you can basically do anything. You can go back to school, you can take a year off and do a sabbatical, you can do so many things. So that really is a sweet spot in my, in my opinion. The, the third moment that was very impactful was when I reached Lean Fi. And I was living still quite quite lean, way leaner than the typical fire person. I was living as a single person in Hollywood, renting a room in an apartment. So, you know, we're talking like enough money to, to support like a, you know, $30,000 a year spend or something, which in LA is about as cheap as you could possibly <laughs> yeah. do, just for the record, for all the people that are going to knock me for overspending. That really blew my mind. I, first of all, I couldn't believe it actually worked. Like I remember looking at my account and just being like, I, I just couldn't believe the math worked. So I would say that is probably the biggest change that I've had about maybe the math or the process. Brian, you, on the other hand, were new to this idea of fire and financial independence. Talk to me a little bit about how the filming of these Firestarter videos changed your own philosophy about money. Filming the series Firestarters, and I think really... I don't know if I knew what my philosophy specifically around money was before. I wasn't raised with a ton of concrete philosophy around money. I, I think I fall into a category. We were interviewing Amanda Holden for this, this current project I'm doing with Grant. And she said that growing up, money was something that they didn't, they didn't stress about, but also they didn't have a lot of. And she said that is kind of the ultimate privilege to not have to think about it is a really big deal. So that is literally the kind of lifestyle that I that I grew up with, even though my parents were by no means wealthy. I think my philosophy coming into it before I started doing the Firestarter series was around the reason I bought houses when I did was because 
I knew as a filmmaker that I would probably work the rest of my life and probably have to do work that I didn't always love for the rest of my life at different times. But I wanted to know that I could once in a while take risks as an artist, that I could late in my life, even if I had a family, I could take a year off and make a movie that was passion that I was passionate about, even if nobody else, you know, funded it. And so that was my baseline for buying property was to allow myself to, to not be totally stressed out and to take and to continue to take risks. So then when I come across fire sort of, you know, after having already purchased a few rental properties, although not really managing them in some really cohesive way, just kind of letting them roll and, do, you know, doing repairs, which I love to do. Fire comes along and has all these sort of ideas and strategies. And I have to say it wasn't, it's only recently that I've started, that I've really solidified my sense of, of my plan and, and, and my philosophy around money. I have to say like, just where I'm doing, I'm currently doing this financial education course with Grant Sabatier and, and the Motley Fool. And it's really influencing my thinking a lot. That's usually what happens when you do projects, you get heavily influenced by the thing that you're working on the most. And he, he talks about getting comfortable with money. The, the more time you spend with it, the more comfortable you get with it. And I, and for the first time in my life, that's kind of the place that I'm hitting at this very moment when, when we're talking today is I feel like I finally understand how I'm going to make it work for me. And the exciting part for me is then transforming that into how I can make it work, how I can use that knowledge to work for others. I mean, I don't mean I'm going to start my own brand or my own podcast necessarily around this, but I mean, I'm passionate about the transformative effect of, of this, of this, of this, you know, thinking. And it's exciting to think about how, how I can give back. Travis, let's talk about the cast and crew on playing with fire. Obviously you Scott and Taylor Rickens had somewhat of a deeper knowledge of financial independence, retire early. It was something you had thought about a lot. How did it affect the crew members? Did anyone have an epiphany as they were in the midst of filming this and said, wow, that's kind of cool? Yeah, it actually had a profound effect on every single person that worked on the film. I remember one day in particular, I was doing an interview, I think it was with J.D. Roth, and we cut after the interview and I turned around and the sound guy was like, I just paid off all my student loans while in the middle of that interview because he had been sitting on a bunch of cash thinking that he needed to save it or whatever. And he realized that, you know, the interest was costing him and so on. And uh, similarly, also like the, not just the, the crew, but also like my editors, you know, my assistant, they all had, were profoundly impacted by this. And a lot of them have, have made great strides toward their own financial security. I, I want to jump in on this because I, I, you know, I had the, we're, so we're, we're filming this course, right? This course right now with Grant and we are, Absolutely having a, a similar experience. Every single person on our on our most recent crew that we're filming, the AC, the sound person, everybody comes up to Grant afterwards and wants to ask him, you know, his advice on, on a few things that are happening in their lives. And and we, Travis, we work in this field of freelancers where it is so hard to piece together. I mean, income is so up and down and hit or miss. And everyone is, you know, often a few paychecks away from, you know, really, str- really, really struggling if they're not already really struggling. And I, I just, we're, 
I'm seeing that happen as well. And it's really, I imagine you get a lot of satisfaction out of this. I get so much joy in seeing and and hearing other people who, who connect to it deeply because I think they are primed for it. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that you've probably noticed as well is our industry is not an industry where people like come to do the hard work of math. I mean, we are, (laughs) we're not, you know, we're not like math people really by trade. So most people, including myself, I think come to the industry thinking that we're going to get rich, like something's going to happen. Like you're going to make your movie and suddenly you're going to become a multimillionaire and have a house in the Hills. And the fact of the matter is, is that, is that Hollywood is a blue collar industry. It's mainly a craft trade industry what you see in the in the press is like you know the outliers actually of of wealth and whatever i mean we almost just had a strike here again with the people who lay cables and you know just the regular electricians and stuff who are very poorly paid and much underpaid as compared to the rest of the industry so you know i for for many years i ran a club when i was first when i was doing my film and when i was uh, first coming in, in contact with the fire industry or industry, the fire community. And I would run a club with the kids that worked at the studio. And most of them would come and their eyes would blaze over because they were just like, this is just too far out of reach. Like to your point, Brian, like they're living paycheck to paycheck. They have no idea. But then there have been a number of them that have come to me. In fact, right before I left, this young woman came to me and she said, I just want you to know, I paid off all my student loan debt. I've put uh, maxed out my Roth for the past two years in a row. And I'm watching my, my, my portfolio grow and it's all thanks to you and the fire community. So again, it actually works to me. I still can't believe that it actually works, but it does. (laughs) Brian, I mean, you are finishing up on an extremely large project in which you did hours and hours of filming. Do you remember seeing people on set go from that blank look to all of a sudden getting the the sparkle in their eye as they put together this idea of, oh, wait, I can actually control some of my financial destiny? Absolutely. I, I mean, and it's very fresh. We just, I mean, we just came off of shooting, you know, three weeks ago. So it's very fresh in my memory. But I, yeah, what, what's interesting about Grant in particular, Grant Sabatier, and the, some of the things that he's teaching is he's really teaching and talking about entrepreneurship. There's many different aspects to, to the fire community and to savings and formulas. Grant, a lot of Grant's philosophy is around figuring out how to earn more money via entrepreneurship. And he has this saying around saying, it's never been easier to live a life you love, or it's never been easier to, more importantly, it's never been easier to really get your ideas to the world. We're living in this, we're living in this amazing time when if you have an idea and you want to trans, you know, get it out to the world in some capacity, or even transform your. I mean, you know, the best example is the makeup artist on our shoot. You know, had all these ideas around how she could be more successful, or make more money, or build her business outside of just being her doing the work. She could hire other individuals and sort of manage a team of, you know, of makeup artists. She had an idea. Actually, she was really profound. She had this idea around. She started designing these special custom made kits that would have instead of having these like a bunch of different makeups and figuring out how to get them, she would custom mold out these, these like kind of plastic molds and put a little bit of each thing of each particular type of makeup in there so that you could go to your shoot and not have to lug around all this stuff. You could have this custom kit. And, and, and so she already was kind of starting it, but running into grant 
he talked about, he, I mean, you know, Grant is such, he's so business-minded. Of course, he just was like all over it. So to answer your question, yeah, yes, absolutely. I mean, hearing the story from Travis about the, the sound person paying off his student loans in the middle of, in the middle of an interview, I mean, that is so, well, I don't know when that was, but that is so 2019 or 2020 that that's happening. And that is so fire. Like that is, that is what we're talking about here is someone getting information and we live in a time you know, when, you know, Travis, you went in and they wouldn't see you with your $5,000. I mean, thank God now we're living in a time when that's not happening. Like, you know, the technology is meeting people where they are and that it couldn't be more important for that to be available right now. Travis, you've taken the extra step. Not only have you learned about financial independence, but recently you retired early. You left your position that you had been at for years. What eventually made you decide to pull the trigger? I went to Spain and I walked the Camino de Santiago, kind of like Diana Miriam, who does economy, who I love, also worked in Hollywood. And, you know, I spent um, 12 days by myself walking the Camino and I just did a really deep dive thinking about where I've come from, where I'm going. I had a great 10 years at the BBC. I mean, I was able to build extraordinary things and do really, really great work. But, you know, 10 years is a long time to be somewhere. And I just kind of had stopped growing the, I had hit the glass ceiling. There wasn't anywhere else for me to really go within the company. And I realized that it was just time for a change. Now I didn't, I didn't say I retired, although that's the rumor. And apparently everybody already knows that since I'm the fire guy at the, at the office, like that I retired early which apparently is quite inspirational for a lot of them. They're like, really, you did it? Like, yep. You know, as an artist, I mean, I need to learn and change and grow. And that had kind of just stagnated for me. So that was basically why I pulled the trigger. Did you feel that making the Playing With Fire documentary accelerated or changed that decision in any way? The thing that it changed was that that was the first time I made an independent film on my own. I mean, I, I did it with Scott, you know, but like, like, you know, we, we've got the financing, Scott did a lot of that. And then as we went along, we got more financing, we, you know, we, we, we were very entrepreneurial about the way that we got the money that was required for the film. So up until that point, I had really been quite reliant on institutions to help create funding and financing. So that did teach me that I am capable of moving out into the world independently. Now, independent filmmaking is a pretty is in a pretty bad place right now in the industry. I read recently that Netflix has been buying up independent films and burying them at the bottom of their algorithm so that they don't compete with their own financed material. There are very, I don't know if you can like, I mean, you can probably name like two independent films that you've heard of in the past five to 10 years that have actually done anything in terms of visibility. So it's a, it's a really bad time. Now that said, there are things like what Brian and Grant are doing that are opening up that are really exciting and, and really cool, but you know, you're kind of back in a way like into a studio situation because like, even though it's great that you're working for the Motley Fool and they're financing it, I'm assuming and everything you're still beholden to them as a studio. So you aren't really functioning as an independent artist. 
you know, and that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. I mean, it's still a good job and like, it's, it's a topic that you're interested in, but the days of being able to make a living or really even get seen with independent work, we're just not in a great spot for that. Everything's cyclical and that'll come back. I'm convinced of it because I'm seeing the way that the avenues are starting to shift. Podcasting is in having its sort of heyday right now with independent work, writing, you know, novels and, and, and book writing also doing really, really well. But the money and the powers that be have really locked up the audiovisual space in a, in a big way, unfortunately. It's funny the way you answer that question. I was thinking, oh, he's going to say that after making the fire movie, he decided that he wanted to walk the walk and talk the talk and that it was time for him to leave because he was financially independent. But how you answered it is, no, I learned some of the technical skills and some of the, you know, I found that I could crowdfund and learn how to, you know, collect the money necessary for independent filming. So I find that funny uh, just as a podcaster, because sometimes you don't get the answers you're expecting. Brian, tell me about the RE part. So you obviously have learned a lot about financial independence. Have you ever considered getting to the point where you could retire? I have zero interest in retiring in the sense that I'm so lucky already to mostly, of course, like, you know, here we are. I said earlier, I still haven't made my feature film, although it is in the works. In fact, when Grant contacted me this September, I had a, I had planned to spend the entire fall winter at a cabin that I own with my family and, and work on a screenplay. That was my plan. And I struggled taking the job because I was so excited about writing it. So the movie is coming and the movies are coming, but the question was retirement. So FI yes, RE no. I I'm so lucky to mostly love what I do. There is a lot of very I remember very early on I read in one of the earliest documentary books that like documentary filmmaking is more athletic than it is aesthetic. There are parts of there are just parts of the lifestyle that are annoying and doing work that you really, really, really don't love. That's the thing I'm gonna move away from. I don't, I haven't done the exact concrete numbers, but I, but I predict I'm shooting for three or four years from now being able to be, I think what they call lean fire, where theoretically I could survive on a certain, you know, amount of money per month. For me, I want a family so that, 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 that changes things a little bit. And I'm mindful of, of keeping that in mind. No, I have, I have no interest in retiring. I do have an interest in living, you know, living where I don't have to do that work I don't love anymore. You both have tangentially touched on the current environment for filmmakers, documentary makers, etc. Travis, I'm wondering what it feels like to be part of the quote unquote media nowadays just having gone through everything we have with COVID and even these tumultuous political times, does it feel different than it did five or 10 years ago? A hundred percent. I mean, it's very different. Where do I begin? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, luckily I don't work in the news, (laughs) so I don't have to deal with all that mess. I'll tell you that the, the thing that's changed the media more than anything is Black Lives Matters. I mean, that, that has changed things behind and in front of the camera in very significant ways. The last show that I sold was an all-Indigenous Alaskan version of Life Below Zero, which is really exciting because 
like I think it's the first all indigenous react certainly the all first all indigenous reality TV show. There's a, a, a scripted series out right now about some an Indian reservation in the Dakotas or something I haven't watched, but it's opened up the doors for inclusivity and opportunity and new kinds of storytelling in a in a really big way that is really kind of revolutionary, to be honest. I mean, it, it came out of the the George Floyd uh, murder. So that's, that's really exciting. On the other hand, the sensitivities around race and diversity and stuff like that are equally as crippling, I would say, because you have to be so careful that you don't do anything that could possibly be construed as offensive or whatever, and people just lose their careers like out of nowhere. So it's precarious and full of opportunity, but you kind of have to do it the right way. Brian, do you worry about media repression or media being blamed for overhyping or the propagation of false information? I mean, is that something that now you spend time worrying about? Yes. I think the fact that we are living in a time when, I mean, we should all be looking at history critically and, 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 and I think who examining who was telling, who's telling the story and what that means. But we are living, you know, storytelling is at the heart of a lot of the misinformation that is getting out into the world right now. It is being told through storytelling. It is being told through news stories, through pseudo documentaries, through news programming. As far as worrying me in particular, I don't know. It feels really big and really daunting. I don't know what the solution is. For me, I think it's around continuing to tell this, like kind of what Travis said, tell the stories that matter as a white male filmmaker, making sure that I both continue to do and tell the stories that I'm passionate about, but continue to also listen and, and try to assist in just reorienting, you know, who gets to tell stories about, about this time and about even the past and aiding in re, you know, revisiting that, that, that history and that, and that telling as much as I can, while still honoring the fact that I, I have my own experiences and I, and I want to, I don't want me being white and male to mean that I, that I don't also tell and tell the stories and my struggles by any means. And I don't feel, I don't feel like I'm being told to do that. The main difference is just stop talking as much and listen more. And that, I mean, that feels, that feels totally natural and fine to me. Also, just there's all these stories that we haven't, we just haven't had a chance to hear yet. And it's so refreshing and rewarding to hear about them. It's, it's, it makes, it makes our lives richer in that, that diversity of perspectives. Brian, do you think that there are special considerations when it comes to financial media surrounding these type of issues? So in this project I'm doing with Grant, we interviewed Kirsten and Julian Saunders, who have the website Rich and Regular. And I was, you know, the profile profile that I did on them for my Market Watch series was 100% a light bulb moment for me in the the potential for fire to change lives and communities. I think Kirsten was some someone who said that when we talk about fire, the tools are the same, but she said that the terrain is very different whether you are a white person or a person of color or an indigenous person or, or someone coming from a different experience. And she said that she thinks that the, one of the big failures of financial, well, let's specifically the fire community, but if we broaden out to talk about financial media, is its inability to communicate that nuance 
that yes, the numbers might be the same. 25% rule, 7% you know, return rate, these kinds of things might be the same, but to somehow be able to communicate and, and understand and appreciate that two different people living even next to each other in the same community, the terrain for them to get there and accomplish that is very different. And you know, part of that is around sort of sensitivity and talking about it. Part of it is just around elevating other voices. And I mean, in my, in my Firestarter series, I've done nine of them and seven or eight of them have featured women, you know, either women as the lead stories or women as part of couples. That was not intentional. I don't, I don't recall it being intentional. Sure. Of course, there's always going to be a director bias to deny that would be, you know, sort of crazy. But so, of course, I was I was drawn to certain stories more than others. But to me, those are <laughs> those are the people that were that were the most interesting, and, and and or doing the work, to be honest. And maybe it was part of the time when I came into it. I'm sure in the earlier days, Fire was a little more male and white. But I think it's changing. Could it change faster? Sure. But those are the stories that I was drawn to. And as a filmmaker, those are the stories that I'm going to put out. I would say that the reason why the financial industry gets a pass is because money is our God in this country. And we're an increasingly secular uh, nation and nobody wants to mess with God. So (laughs) you cannot politicize God and that's money. What's interesting to me and what I've really learned from talking to you both, Brian and Travis, is that we are storytellers and the type of storytellers that we are influences what we create, but also our creations influence who we become. So listening to you talk about the projects you've been involved in, how you've added to them and how they've added to you to me is quite fascinating. And I wanted to thank you for taking the time and being on the show today I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where can we find you if we want to learn more? First, Brian, what is up next for you? And if people want to reach out to you, how can they? What is up next? Well, I'm delivering this current project for The Motley Fool at the end of the month in December. And I plan to take a serious, pretty serious break. This has been a four-month all-in, basically, everyday project. And yeah, I'm going to go back to the woods and write my screenplay. So keep an eye out for that. The best way to find me is probably on Instagram. I think my handle is at Brian Quist. And if you type my name into Google, you'll probably find me as well. And Travis, what is up next with your retirement, not retirement? And where can we find you if we want to learn more? Well, this morning, I'm going to see the Steven Spielberg version of West Side Story. So that's what's up next for me today. I'm, you know, I'm, I gave myself the task to try to drive myself to boredom if I can for the next few months. I've been <laughs> grinding pretty hard for the past 10 years. And I just wanted to see if I could just take enough away to like drive myself to boredom. And I'm finding it's very difficult to do that because it's very easy to fill your time just with a lot of other stuff. So, you know, I'm, like Brian, I'm, I'm trying to take a little bit of a break here. And then I want to revisit in 2022 kind of where I want to po- point my energies next. And if people want to get oh, in touch if, with you, is there an easy way to reach you? I mean, I don't really blog. I have a website, TravisShakespeare.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram and stuff. So if people want to get hold of me, they can, they can do it through those, those venues. 
All right. Well, this has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Jordan Grummet, aka Doc G, I wanted to thank Travis Shakespeare and Brian Quist for being on the show. That's a wrap. Have you been considering investing in real estate? If you have, the best place to go to learn about this asset class is the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson. Here, Chad, a.k.a. The Coach, talks about real estate and gives you all the tips and tricks. But not only that, but he has guests on real proof of concept about how to reach financial independence by mastering this tricky asset class. Check them out. Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson. It is a must-listen to if you think real estate is going to be part of your financial holdings. The easiest way to get there is to go to CoachCarson.com. Again, CoachCarson.com. Take a listen. You won't regret it. I can't think of a better way to end this episode. <laughs> yeah, because I, I can't argue with that. That that money is God. You don't want to mess with God. Cool. Very cool. Awesome. Thank you guys for that conversation. That was cool. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. It's um, that was great. Yeah, I I, I think that um, people in general are fascinated by media, partially because we don't understand it, right? So. And I'm using media as a broad term, right? Because I'm not only talking about news, et cetera, but documentary filmmaking, filmmaking, et cetera. Um, I think a lot of people, we just don't get it. We don't know what it's about. And it, it's interesting to hear about your lives and how your projects affect you. Because uh, I think that just adds insight. And certainly, I think even from the financial side, it adds insight to see kind of the unique things that you guys deal with. Well, you know, Doc, I mean, having done these podcasts, I mean... You get a little taste of it, but when you when you do a major project like a film, you're basically it's like getting married to yeah. something. Yeah. And you end up living with it like in ways that you cannot even begin to imagine. I mean, playing with fire took like two years. I mean, Ugh. you know, you think you think, oh, it's just we'll just make a documentary, no big deal, just do some <laughs> interviews and blah blah blah. And you know, I mean you end up with your partners, you go through the thick and the thin. And yeah. I mean, that's one reason why people like working in entertainment so much, I think, is because it's kind of like going to war and you get like mm. a little platoon mm. with each project and you get, you know, to love people and hate people and sometimes have sex with people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you know, it's like a, it's a real family affair. I was about to say I was I was relating to this very much up until the sometimes have sex with people part related to book writing. It's like when you um I yeah, noticed that yeah. too with book writing is like you've got to live with that project. And I, I'm definitely at that point where I'm like, OK, it's been a year and a half, two years. We're getting closer and closer to the end. But but living with it is is it's a it's an interesting experience, I guess, is, is all I can say. Well, listen, pre-COVID, there was, uh, I'm sure, more than one author who had sex with his publisher or her publisher <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, in the past. So uh, <laughs> there's still hope for you. I, I was about to say, I'm a happily married man, Travis. So <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm trying to <laughs> not trying to break up your marriage. Things. Yeah, I was about to say, you know, if we come to LA, you might meet my wife. She may not appreciate <laughs> that comment. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. And, and COVID too has been craziness. And uh, just thinking about how COVID has affected your lives. is. Just, oh my gosh. Totally. It was scary. I mean, it's also crazy how quickly the work came back. I mean, that was, I mean, what sh- I mean, more than shocking me how quickly it went away was when it came back, it came back hard. You know, I, yeah. I, I had such a hard time finding editors for this current project because, because, because everyone's just booked. Good. Well, I'm glad about that. Like, I'm glad I it's am, come back and I'm glad that people too. are busy yeah. and working. Yeah, I am too. I am too. We All never right. stopped. And in fact, part of like the reason that, that I did end up resigning was because COVID burned me out. Like, okay. oh, interesting. I mean, we were still, we were still producing all of our shows. Uh, I produced seven shows during the pandemic. And um, I remember on sending our first crew to Alaska I, we really thought that we were sending them to die. They were like sending, you know, Instagram shots back with face shields, double masked. And it was that, or they don't work and don't pay their mortgage and feed their families. Yeah. And it was tremendously scre- stressful. Um, so just getting through that was a total nightmare. And uh, it just made me think about what's, you know, important in life. Mm-hmm. All of us. Yeah. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. 